Section 18 of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume 1, by Charles Francis Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 18, The Letters, 1783. 19 November, 1783, to John Adams. My dearest friend, your favor, dated at Amsterdam in July, was last evening handed me, and this evening your letter of the 10th of September by Colonel Ogden reached me. I had for some time supposed that the delay of public business would retard your return, and, knowing that the definitive treaty was not completed until September, and that the commercial treaty was still to form, I had little reason to expect you, unless your state of health required an immediate resignation of all public business. Your letter, therefore, which informs me of your determination to pass another winter abroad, is by no means unexpected. That we must pass it with a vast ocean between us is a reflection no ways pleasurable. Yet this must be the case. I had much to do to persuade myself to venture a summer passage, but a winter one I never could think of encountering. I am too much of a coward. It is now the middle of November. It would be December or January before I could possibly adjust all my affairs, and I know of no person with whom I am acquainted, except Mr. Jackson of Newburyport, who is now going abroad. Mr. Temple and family sail this month. Besides, there is a stronger objection with me than even a winter's voyage. Congress have not appointed any person yet to the court of Britain. There are many who wish for that place, many who have a more splendid title, and many more thousands to claim it with. I know Mr. J. has written pressingly to Congress in your favor, and absolutely declined it himself, but whether you will finally be the person is among the uncertain events. One thing, however, is certain, that I do not wish it. I should have liked very well to have gone to France and resided there a year, but to think of going to England in a public character and engaging at my time of life in scenes quite new, attended with dissipation, parade, and nonsense, I am sure I should make an awkward figure. The retired domestic circle the feast of reason and the flow of soul are my ideas of happiness, and my most ardent wish is to have you return and become master of the feast. My health is infirm. I am still subject to a severe nervous pain in my head, and fatigue of any kind will produce it. Neither of us appears to be built for duration. Would to heaven the few remaining days allotted us might be enjoyed together. It has been my misfortune that I could not attend to your health, watch for your repose, alleviate your hours of anxiety, and make you a home wherever you resided. More, says a skillful doctor, depends upon the nurse than the physician. My determination is to tarry at home this winter, and if I cannot prevail upon you to return to me in the spring, you well know that I may be drawn to you provided there is any stability in Congress. One strong tie which held me here is dissolved. My dear parent used to say, You must never go, child, whilst I live. 
it is far from being my inclination. Note, the death of the Reverend Mr. Smith, the father of Mrs. Adams, took place not long before the date of this letter. Mr. Thaxter will be able to give me, when he arrives, the best intelligence upon the subject. I wrote largely to you last week. I hope this letter will go by a French brig. Adieu, and believe me, whether present or absent, most affectionately yours. Braintree, 20 November, 1783. To John Quincy Adams. This evening, as I was sitting with only your sister by my side, who was scribbling to some of her correspondence, my neighbor, Field, entered with, I have a letter for you, madam. My imagination was wandering to Paris, ruminating upon the long, long absence of my dear son and his parent, so that I was rather inattentive to what he said, until he repeated, I have letters for you from abroad. The word abroad roused my attention, and I eagerly seized the letters, the handwriting and seal of which gave me hopes that I was once more about to hear from my young wanderer, nor was I disappointed. After two years' silence, and a journey of which I can scarcely form an idea, to find you safely returned to your parent, to hear of your health, and to see your improvements. You cannot know, should I describe to you, the feelings of a parent. Through your father I sometimes heard from you, but one letter only ever reached me after you arrived in Russia. Your excuses, however, have weight and are accepted, but you must give them further energy by a ready attention to your pen in future. Four years have already passed away since you left your native land and this rural cottage, humble indeed when compared to the palaces you have visited and the pomp you have been witness to. But I dare say you have not been so inattentive an observer as to suppose that sweet peace and contentment cannot inhabit the lowly roof and bless the tranquil inhabitants equally guarded and protected in person and property in this happy country as those who reside in the most elegant and costly dwellings. If you live to return, I can form to myself an idea of the pleasure you will take in treading over the ground and visiting every place your early years were accustomed wantonly to gamble in. Even the rocky common and lowly whortleberry bush will not be without their beauties. My anxieties have been and still are great, lest the numerous temptations and snares of vice should vitiate your early habits of virtue and destroy those principles which you are now capable of reasoning upon and discerning the beauty and utility of as the only rational source of happiness here or foundation of felicity hereafter. Placed as we are in a transitory scene of probation, drawing nigher and still nigher, day after day, to that important crisis which must introduce us to a new system of things, it ought certainly to be our principal concern to become qualified for our expected dignity. What is it that affectionate parents require of their children for all their care, anxiety, and toil on their account? Only 
that they would be wise and virtuous, benevolent and kind. Ever keep in mind, my son, that your parents are your disinterested friends, and that, if at any time, their advice militates with your own opinion or the advice of others, you ought always to be diffident of your own judgment, because you may rest assured that their opinion is founded on experience and long observation, and that they would not direct you but to promote your happiness. Be thankful to a kind providence who has hitherto preserved the lives of your parents, the natural guardians of your youthful years. With gratitude I look up to heaven, blessing the hand which continued to me my dear and honored parents until I was settled in life. And though now I regret the loss of them, and daily feel the want of their advice and assistance, I cannot suffer as I should have done if I had been early deprived of them. You will doubtless have heard of the death of your worthy grandpapa before this reaches you. He left you a legacy more valuable than gold or silver. He left you his blessings and his prayers that you might return to your country and friends, improved in knowledge and matured in virtue, that you might become a useful citizen, a guardian of the laws, liberty, and religion of your country, as your father, he was pleased to say, had already been. Lay this bequest up in your memory and practice upon it. Believe me, you will find it a treasure that neither moth nor rust can devour. I received letters from your father last evening, dated in Paris the 10th of September, informing me of the necessity of his continuance abroad this winter. The season is so far advanced that I readily sacrifice the desire of seeing him to his safety. A voyage upon this coast at this season is fraught with dangers. He has made me a request that I dare not comply with at present. No husband, no son, to accompany me upon the boisterous ocean, to animate my courage and dispel my fears, I dare not engage with so formidable a combatant. If I should find your father fixed in the spring, and determined to continue abroad a year or two longer, the earnest desire I have to meet him and my dear son might overcome the reluctance I feel at the idea of engaging in a new scene, and the love I have for domestic attachments and the still calm of life. But it would be more agreeable to me to enjoy all my friends together in my own native land. From those who have visited foreign climes I could listen with pleasure to the narrative of their adventures, and derive satisfaction from the learned detail, content myself that the little learning I have gained is all from simple nature drained. I have a desire that you might finish your education at our university, and I see no chance for it unless you return in the course of the year. Your cousin, W. Cranch, expects to enter next July. He would be happy to have you his associate. I hope your father will indulge you with a visit to England this winter. It is a country I should be fond of your seeing. Christianity, which teaches us to forgive our enemies, prevents me from enjoining upon you a similar vow to that which Hamilcar obtained from his son Hannibal. But I know not how to think of loving those haughty islanders. Your friends send you their affectionate regards, and I enjoin it upon you to 
Write often to your ever-affectionate mother, A. Adams. Braintree, 18 December, 1783. To John Adams. My dearest friend, I returned last evening from Boston, where I went at the kind invitation of my uncle and aunt to celebrate our annual festival. Dr. Cooper being dangerously sick, I went to hear Mr. Clark, who is settled with Dr. Chauncey. This gentleman gave us an animated, elegant, and sensible discourse from Isaiah, 55th chapter and 12th verse. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Whilst he ascribed glory and praise unto the Most High, he considered the worthy, disinterested, and undaunted patriots as the instruments in the hand of Providence for accomplishing what was marvelous in our eyes. He recapitulated the dangers they had passed through, and the hazards they had run, the firmness which had, in a particular manner, distinguished some characters, not only early to engage in so dangerous a contest, but, in spite of our gloomy prospects, to persevere even unto the end, until they had obtained a peace safe and honorable, large as our desires, and much beyond our expectations. How did my heart dilate with pleasure, when, as each event was particularized, I could trace my friend as a principal in them, could say it was he who was one of the first in joining the band of patriots who formed our first national council. It was he who, though happy in his domestic attachments, left his wife, his children, then but infants, even surrounded with the horrors of war, terrified and distressed, the week before the memorable 19th of April, left them to the protection of that providence which has never forsaken them, and joined himself undismayed to that respectable body of which he was a member. Trace his conduct through every period, you will find him the same undaunted character, encountering the dangers of the ocean, risking captivity and a dungeon, contending with wickedness in high places, jeoparding his life, endangered by the intrigues, revenge, and malice of a potent, though defeated, nation. These are not the mere eulogiums of conjugal affection, but certain facts and solid truths. My anxieties, my distresses at every period bear witness to them. Though now, by a series of prosperous events, the recollection is more sweet than painful. Whilst I was in town, Mr. Dana arrived very unexpectedly, for I had not received your letters by Mr. Thaxter. My uncle fortunately discovered him as he came up State Street, and instantly engaged him to dine with him, acquainting him that I was in town and at his house. The news soon reached my ears. Mr. Dana arrived! Mr. Dana arrived! From every person you saw! But how was I affected? The tears involuntarily flowed from my eyes. Though God is my witness, I envied not the felicity of others, yet my heart swelled with grief, and the idea that I, I only, was left alone recalled all the tender scenes of separation 
and overcame all my fortitude. I retired and reasoned myself into composure sufficient to see him without a childish emotion. But, oh, my dearest friend, what shall I say to you in reply to your pressing invitation? I have already written to you in answer to your letters, which were dated September 10th, and reached me a month before those by Mr. Thaxter. I related to you all my fears respecting a winter's voyage. My friends are all against it, and Mr. Gary, as you will see by the copy of his letter enclosed, has given his opinion upon well-grounded reasons. If I should leave my affairs in the hands of my friends, there would be much to think of and much to do to place them in that method and order I would wish to leave them in. Theory and practice are two very different things, and the object is magnified as I approach nearer to it. I think if you were abroad in a private character and necessitated to continue there, I should not hesitate so much at coming to you. But a mere American as I am, unacquainted with the etiquette of courts, taught to say the thing I mean and to wear my heart in my countenance, I am sure I should make an awkward figure, and then it would mortify my pride if I should be thought to disgrace you. Yet strip royalty of its pomp and power, and what are its votaries more than their fellow worms? I have so little of the ape about me that I have refused every public invitation to figure in the gay world, and sequestered myself in this humble cottage, content with rural life and my domestic employment, in the midst of which I have sometimes smiled upon recollecting that I had the honor of being allied to an ambassador. Adieu. Braintree, 26 December, 1783. To John Quincy Adams. My dear son, your letters by Mr. Thaxter I received, and was not a little pleased with them. If you do not write with the precision of a Robertson, nor the elegance of a Voltaire, it is evident you have profited by the perusal of them. The account of your northern journey and your observation upon the Russian government would do credit to an older pen. The early age at which you went abroad gave you not an opportunity of becoming acquainted with your own country. Yet the revolution in which we were engaged held it up in so striking and important a light that you could not avoid being in some measure irradiated with the view. The characters with which you were connected, and the conversation you continually heard, must have impressed your mind with a sense of the laws, the liberties, and the glorious privileges which distinguished the free, sovereign, independent states of America. Compare them with the vassalage of the Russian government you have described, and say, were this highly favored land, barren as the mountains of Switzerland, and covered ten months in the year with snow, would she not have the advantage even of Italy, with her orange groves, her breathing statues, and her melting strains of music, or of Spain, with her treasures from Mexico and Peru, not one of which can boast that first of blessings, the glory of human nature, the inestimable privilege of sitting down under their vines and fig trees, enjoying in peace and security whatever heaven has lent them, having none to make them afraid. 
let your observations and comparisons produce in your mind an abhorrence of domination and power the parent of slavery ignorance and barbarism which places man upon a level with his fellow tenants of the woods a day an hour of virtuous liberty is worth a whole eternity of bondage you have seen power in its various forms a benign deity when exercised in the suppression of fraud injustice and tyranny but a demon when united with unbounded ambition a wide wasting fury which has destroyed her thousands not an age of the world but has produced characters to which whole human hecatombs have been sacrificed what is the history of mighty kingdoms and nations but a detail of the ravages and cruelties of the powerful over the weak yet it is instructive to trace the various causes which produced the strength of one nation and the decline and weakness of another to learn by what arts one man has been able to subjugate millions of his fellow-creatures the motives which have put him upon action and the causes of his success sometimes driven by ambition and a lust of power at other times swallowed up by religious enthusiasm blind bigotry and ignorant zeal sometimes enervated with luxury and debauched by pleasure until the most powerful nations have become a prey and have been subdued by these sirens when neither the number of their enemies nor the prowess of their arms could conquer them history informs us that the assyrian empire sunk under the arms of cyrus with his poor but hardy persians the extensive and opulent empire of persia fell an easy prey to alexander and a handful of macedonians and the macedonian empire when enervated by the luxury of asia was compelled to receive the yoke of the victorious romans yet even this mistress of the world as she is proudly styled in her turn defaced her glory tarnished her victories and became a prey to luxury ambition faction pride revenge and avarice so that jugurtha after having purchased an acquaintance for the blackest of crimes breaks out into an exclamation o city ready for sale if a buyer rich enough can be found the history of your own country and the late revolution are striking and recent instances of the mighty things achieved by a brave enlightened and hardy people determined to be free the very yeomanry of which in many instances have shown themselves superior to corruption as britain well knows on more occasions than the loss of her andre glory my son in a country which has given birth to characters both in the civil and military departments which may vie with the wisdom and valor of antiquity as an immediate descendant of one of those characters may you be led to an imitation of that disinterested patriotism and that noble love of your country which will teach you to despise wealth titles pomp and equipage as mere external advantages which cannot add to the internal excellence of your mind or compensate for the want of integrity and virtue may your mind be thoroughly impressed with the absolute necessity of universal virtue and goodness 
as the only sure road to happiness, and may you walk therein with undeviating steps, is the sincere and most affectionate wish of your mother, A. Adams. End of section 18